and welcome back to Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series focused on the behavioral science approach to risk management. I'm Amanda Rod, a litigation and enforcement partner and co-chair of Ropes and Gray's Anti-Corruption and International Risk Practice. In this final part of our three-part discussion, I'm once again joined by my colleague, Rosemary Paul, a litigation and enforcement partner, as well as Miriam Hussein, Melissa Myatt, and Katerina Wakeman, who are all partners at EY. In this installment, we will be focusing on remediation, which in a way ties together the various points we've been discussing throughout this three-part series. Melissa, we have spent a lot of time saying that it's important to understand root cause as well when we're thinking about how to address any potential issue or how to look at any potential issue. Can you give some thought to, again, uh, reminding us why that's important and then also what are some of the best ways to make sure that we are really understanding what the root cause may be? Yeah, I, I mean, we talked earlier about with a better understanding of root cause, you can better target your remediation. You can um, maybe design your remediation to be something that's more impactful across people that isn't introducing a whole series of new controls, or you know simply um, you know the the consequences for the individuals involved. Um, and and I. I mean, my views on root cause are relatively simple. I think the simpler you keep it, the easier it is. Uh, I've seen a lot of organizations tie themselves up in knots trying to create categories and classifications. And really, whenever something goes wrong, it's not just about identifying the issue and the finding, but, but that basis of root cause. And for me, it's as simple as it happened because somebody made a choice or somebody made a mistake. And fundamentally, the difference for me there is who should be accountable for the fix. If it was a mistake, I think that's where you can then go and look at your training, your controls, your processes. And if it was a choice, you go straight to leadership. People make choices because of instructions from their managers, peer pressure from their teams, expectations around their role and the metrics against which they're measured. And if you can really hone in on one of those two, you can then focus where you drive your remediation. And that would be at its simplest level. I think if people could focus on that, that's where you can help start to think more broadly about where culture plays a part in remediation. Uh, we just completed an investigation recently, which is a large organization which acts as a outsourcer for other organizations to provide services to clients of organizations. And the investigation was around the fact that their their people have been misreporting the standard of service delivery. Um, so they were doing that in order not to incur penalty charges under the contract. But when you looked at the root cause, the reality was the leadership was signing up to contracts, which was completely at odds with the capacity of these individuals to deliver. So when they were sitting there and they had the choice to either tell the truth to their clients and say, we haven't hit the target, or go to their leadership and say, you signed us up to something that we can't deliver, what they ended up doing was to manipulate the numbers. So when there's a choice to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that made the choice and look at the facts and understand the why, otherwise the same thing will happen again. I completely agree with that. And I think it is important to find a way to think about this in a simple term so that we can action it. 
But I think sometimes the danger is we stop short of where we should. So we come to understand the facts sufficiently to say that this person made a decision that is problematic and we make the determination that it was on purpose, right? That it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It was a conscious decision that they made, but then we stop and we start immediately trying to by ourselves figure out how to fix it and make sure the person can't or doesn't make that mistake or that choice again. Mm. And as you just illustrated, there can be a whole host of reasons sitting behind why that person made that choice. And we really should be trying to understand that and, and asking directly why they made the choice, looking at other patterns, looking at other similar choices that are being made across the organization to understand what else might be driving it. Because as you say, you just replace one person with another person who makes the same decision. For me, choice is very simple. It's you're, you choose to do something because you're too lazy to do the right thing or do something in the right way. You're afraid, so you feel pressured and that you have to do it. Or you're being fraudulent. You're taking advantage or manipulating something. And each of those fundamentally go back to the culture of the, the team and the organization you're working in that, that drove you to make that that drove you to make that choice. So I totally agree with you. You, you, People do stop short on this root cause analysis oftentimes. Yeah, and I I would like to to add to this uh, maybe one concrete example. So um, we have just looked at um, a number of investigation reports within one of our clients um, to look at the behavior, look through a behavioral lens and understand what were some of the social norms that seem to have been dominating some of those choices or mistakes like you have just um, framed it and what was quite interesting is that most of the times um, it was a systemic problem and not at all group dynamics or not at all team dynamics Um, but most of the times it was a problem of incentivization in a certain way Um, the goals the goals were were clearly uh, set out to increase competition among departments and among functions Um, that ultimately led to an internal competition um, in that organization to then um, go down a a non-compliant way. And so I think we need to look at systemic issues that create social norms um, who then influence behaviors um, of of individuals. And for this particular client, what then the root cause um, analysis has, has shown is that we need to create measures that go much beyond um, the function within uh, within this investigation. So we looked into HR systems, for example, or we looked into um, the goal setting. Um, is there a collective goal for, for teams or is there individual goal setting? Um, and we looked at incentive structures. And I think that's quite fascinating if you then look at it from a systemic perspective as opposed to Uh, just an individual or a group level. And just one last anecdote um, to this. Um, So this was an investigation um, for over a period of time where where we could see that also the CEO was quite surprised that nobody ever came to him because we could see that speak up was cultivated quite a lot and it was also expected that things were brought up to executives. And so he was quite surprised um, in this. And so... What we found out uh, through this behavioral lens was that people expected um, that he would be furious if 
if they would bring it up, although he completely has a different expectation. So I think it's also quite interesting to see how mid-management expects something completely different of what was set out originally by a top executive. So I think we also need to look into how middle management is, is probably perpetuating certain um, patterns that are not necessarily the tone or the action from the top. I love that story uh, because I think it shows so many important points that we've we've talked about together. But one of them being that it really revealed that if it, it was the incentives, perhaps that was really that, that really were making a big impact on uh, the behavior and the decisions that were being made. So of course, if that's what's driving the behavior, then changing any policy remediating against any individual, training all day long, isn't really going to move the needle. And I think sometimes, especially if you find out that it is compensation or an incentive structure that is really the cause, some people throw their hands up then and say, well, that's great, but I don't have the authority to change that within my organization. That decision can only be made at the very most senior levels, and presumably it's been made. And so we just have to learn to live with that structure. And I think that's where you get these um, kind of problematic feedback loops, right, where those that are making the most important decisions with compensation and incentive structures may not fully anticipate what those what impact those will have on people within the organization. And then people within the organization will feel that there's no reason to raise that as a potential remedy because they assume the decision was made intentionally um, to set a structure that way. And then you're kind of sitting with your hands tied behind your back. So I think it's just such a great example of, uh, you know, really showing that leadership didn't intend that and that there is a way to fix what ultimately was the root cause there. Such a good illustration um, in so many ways, not least the importance of having the courage to challenge sort of the the outcome. So if no one's raising anything with our senior management, there must be nothing to raise. And that can sound naive or sort of self-deceiving, but it, it can actually be quite a common approach taken. And sort of having the the incentive and the, the courage to kind of look underneath that to say, well, why have we got zero reports? Is there actually something underlying this? that requires us to tweak or address um, is just so important. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just wanted to add one one additional layer to this story because um, I'm happy that it resonates with you because there's, there's one more twist to this whole story. I think what also fascinated us um, with this with this investigation um, was, was that we could see that um, there really was a lack of admitting to top leadership uh, that they were failing. Um, and I think this is a, a crucial point that you need to admit when you go down that route and when we talk about root cause and when we talk about we want to create a culture um, that, that is healthy and ethical, that you need to commit to become a learning organization and you need to commit to the fact that you will fail and you need to commit to the fact that you need each other to learn from mistakes and that it's perfectly natural that you will not reach certain targets. The question is, what path are you going to go down? Are you going down the path of deceiving each other or competing with each other? 
um, and what type of culture have you created to maybe go down another path where we choose learning and feedback and innovating and trying to accomplish a goal together even though we have failed five times. So I think this is really what struck, struck us the most around this, um, that it's a question of which path do you choose, not just once, but over and over again. Um, and then, of course, like, like we already touched upon, incentives and, and the culture that, that is being set out is important in that. To that point of the continuous learning, I think one challenge is, especially for organizations that do have um, data analytics as part of their monitoring programs, which is increasingly the case, by definition, those the risk indicators that they're looking for are based on what happened in the past. And the challenge is that in conditions of uncertainty, like now, for example, new threats emerge which may not have been experienced before and therefore not captured in anything that they're monitoring for. So if that risk this does actually crystallize, your traditional monitoring is not going to catch it. Yeah, but what I'm loving about some of the data analytics that I'm seeing emerge now across the market is the using the analytics to measure and create benchmarks based on your own data. So as the whole environment shifts, so as everybody has worked from home, sales forces around the world are now fully virtual, and it changes all of the norms and benchmarks. So if you're doing anomaly detection, you're doing an anomaly against the new, new and shifting benchmarks. So I think that's where some of the advanced analytics are kind of cool in terms of how it, it doesn't, you're not reliant on, like you say, that traditional historic indicator um, in a static way. But then that brings the challenge of allowing the data to talk to you. Where's the line between the level of data you need to to capture in relation to, to individuals' behavior um, versus the responsibility not to step over the line and being being both compliant with the letter of the law but also the spirit of the law in terms of the employee's um, uh, privacy in relation to their digital footprint? And I think that's a that's an emerging question of the ethics of how um, how this is done, how the data is captured and looked at with good intent in order to provide feedback for the organization to identify cultural issues and, and address it, but in a way that is not in itself unethical. Sorry. That's a whole new tweak on, on, on both ethics and culture because you have a huge emerging topic around the ethics of how you use data. And it's also heavily influenced by national cultures around privacy, privacy, and what what rights you have to your digital footprint using your employer's assets or creating that footprint on company time. Um, and you see some countries in the world trying to use and some governments around the world trying to get a hold of that kind of data from companies to monitor and police its own people. You have other countries around the world who um, have very lax or no privacy regulation. And then you've got Europe, which, um, you know, is very protective of its people's digital footprints. You've also got cultural norms about privacy changing. And I think particularly now at this time of crisis where we're discussing use of sort of health apps, data apps, tracking apps, and sort of sense that, you know, for the people for whom those ideas of monitoring would be anathema, the fact that they might um, be much more open to it and then we get used to it 
think that's a really good point because the reason we're becoming more open to it is that we understand the intent and we understand the broader social good that it will do. And perhaps that's part of the answer for organisations that the critical importance of being transparent about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think that's absolutely right. Transparency is key. And, um, and you know, for employees to understand why they're being monitored, how they're being monitored, um, and that it's necessary and that it's the least intrusive option. All of these are factors at play. You also have a generational divide here where the, the generations entering the workforce now have grown up uh, with a digital footprint. So have a, have a much different perception of it as well. So I think we'll continue to see this sh change and, and take shape. But it comes back to is the use of that information done for good purposes or not? And how, and how clearly transparent is that? Yeah, to that point, Melissa, I think this generational shift is a really, really interesting topic because when we take it back to culture, I think technology and data analytics can play a tremendously important role in making ethics easy. Um, so Jonathan Hyde, um, I think, uh, yeah, one of the leading um, uh, moral psychologists, he always says that we have to make ethics easy. And I think the same is true for organizations. I think the millennials as well as Generation Z, they're expecting to come into an organization where they don't have to read the policy with 200 pages and being referred to paragraph five of page 350. They want to have it at their fingertips, what they are allowed to do, what not. Um, and I think also the whole transformation around how do we create cultures of integrity? How do we create compliance? How do we enable the business um, by using technology and data analytics in, in, uh, in behaviors? I think that's becoming um, one of the biggest trends that we can see. And I think um, one fascinating work that we have done with General Electric, uh, where we allowed to speak about publicly because it's been published in the Fraud magazine, um, where we use digital twins uh, as a concept to support high-risk groups in their compliance behavior by making it easy for them um, in a situation where, um, you know, certain procedures or SOPs are, are expected, how data analytics and a digital twin and their footprint can help in enabling them um, in doing their business in a more convenient way as opposed to having yet another um, web-based training uh, where maybe the, the effect is, is not as good as, as having real-time compliance at your fingertips. So I think this is something where we see a huge transformation happening and where data can play a tremendously big role in, in also bringing this alive in the future. Yeah, I think the concept of making ethics easy is an interesting one, and we could probably have a whole separate debate around it. My initial thought and currently in these times is that you know, ethics is something that the privileged and the rich have the time and luxury to think about. And when you're in a crisis and you're trying to make sure your all of your basic needs are met, whether that's personally or for the business, you know, I do wonder then what happens to, you know, that concept of ethics um, in the decision making and, and the thinking around what, when you've got two bad choices ahead of you. Um, you know, how, where does ethics play into that? Um, and I think it would be interesting to see how that plays out through this crisis. I, I think you're right that it's a huge challenge, but I think it is 
so critical to keep our focus on ethics and also on culture and on all the issues that we've been talking about because it is possible that we have two bad choices that we have to choose between, but there's no doubt we're all going to be judged for whichever choice we make. And, you know, we've, I've spent a lot of time working with organizations to make sure they find a way to keep driving these agendas forward, even if the way they drive it forward maybe looks slightly different than it, it might otherwise in a different time. Completely agree. And I think, uh, if I may add this, uh, it's not about the perfect decision in ethics. It's about making transparent why you chose path A, B, or C. And I think this is also getting back to how you're transparent with your investors, how you're transparent uh, with your consumers, how you're transparent with employees. I'm not quite sure if we, if we expect perfection when it comes down to ethics. Um, I think to be, be an ethical person means you, you try to be transparent about your intent. You try to be transparent about where you took your decisions from, where you took the data from, what it's based upon. And uh, when it hasn't been the right decision to be um, mindful about what the mistakes were and then go back into root cause, like we have said. But I think um, we, we would be going down an alarming path if we would expect perfect decisions, um, uh, if you know what I mean. I, I think it, it, it would be fair to say that we should um, engage in the discourse and engage in uh, including voices especially those that um, are most of the time silent in discussions of ethics and then be inclusive about different voices to then, you know, try to get the best possible outcome, which is maybe not the perfect outcome, but at least a more inclusive than we would have intended originally. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this insightful discussion and a huge thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to the Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.